Simon. Hello. Hey, Simon. <laughs> Hello. Hey, Simon. It's Skyler. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello. Hello. What's up, Simon? Hello. Simon. How you doing? Hey. Hello. Hello. Hey, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hello, Simon. Hi, my name is Simon Brooks, and I am the host of Conversations with Storytellers. Welcome back to a new season of wisdom, folk, and fairy tales from our elders. A meeting with professional storytellers. Each share their thoughts on our profession and gems of wisdom. Welcome to the podcast. I'm really glad you're here. The first guest of the season is Diane Edgecombe. Diane Edgecombe was one of the first people I saw to make a big impression on me on the professional circuit. Part of it was to do with the workshop I took at the same conference, and the detail, depth and compassion she has came out in her work on stage and with workshop participants. Although we've known each other for a long time, we have skirted about each other. Not intentionally, just never had the time to sit down together for more than five minutes. I have a lot of respect for Diane and her ethos and ethics. I have never had a conversation with her that did not make me think or get me more excited about our craft. So to spend an hour with her in her home, thanks Tom for letting me hang out with Diane for a morning, was wonderful. Please enjoy the thoughts and wisdom of Diane Edgecombe. So thanks for doing this for yeah. me. I really appreciate it. Thanks for traveling down. No, you're well, well, you know, I'd rather do a face-to-face than over the phone because yeah. the quality is so much better. Oh, is that why? <laughs> well, ah, well, it's also, there's also, it's also more personable. It is much more personal. Well, look, you know, starting right there, uh-huh. the face-to-face uh-huh. is really part of what it's about with storytelling, Yeah, in my opinion. Yeah, it is. You know, it is about the present moment. It's about being in the presence of, so... Right there, you have said the right thing. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to be upbraided before we get started. That would be a bad thing. So, um, you've, you've done a lot, and you've been doing this... For, when did you start doing storytelling, for a living? Uh, for a living, um, like... I was thinking 1890, and I'm like, no, that can't be right. Um, <laughs> uh it was like 1989, 1990. Okay. You know, that I jumped the, the ship, you know, before I started storytelling and making my living that way. You have to have like a concurrent job that's giving you the time and the space to do the artistic work and the business work to get something moving. Right. It's almost like having two snowshoes on your feet. You want to, you want to, you, you got to keep the one that's already bringing in the money mm-hmm. and then, then gradually you can, you can just go. Especially so. if you're married to another artist. Oh yes, we have a lot of, <laughs> a lot of backlog of money. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. So how, how so you were you were in drama before you came into storytelling? Exactly. Yes, I didn't know there was storytelling, and mm-hmm. I'm I'm happy that I spent, you know, my childhood and my you know early adulthood and my college years, a couple of them before I decided I didn't need college in theater. I'm really happy because, it it is also still it's a sister form. Mm-hmm. And there was a rigor and a training that they had vocally and physically that hasn't yet um, arrived in storytelling. So I had a lot of very basic training in the imagination and in the expressive arts and and the, the fluidity of the voice, the fluidity of the body. 
um, that has just served me in, in when I fell in love with storytelling. So you, you do a lot of really good voices, I think, way better than mine. Um, yeah, but I don't have the authentic accent. Well, that's got nothing to do with it. That's just, that's just the look of the Irish, isn't it? Oh. Uh, but you, so when you did theatre work, did you also do like voiceover work and things like that at one point? Um, I did kind of look into that, but um, it wasn't really, it wasn't really calling me. You, you're, you're advertising when you're doing voiceover work, or you're, you're narrating for something. But that work is, as you know, it's all farmed out now to people who are names, yeah. pretty much. Yeah. Um, no, and I, I think that my, uh, I have a flexible voice. I have a malleable voice. I always had in my early. Tra- it was really my early training. I was in children's theater. And my first role was as the gray man in Dumbling and the Golden Goose. That was my first role, as an old gray man. So you could say that was a stretch. You know, I was Uh about 10 years old. Um, (laughs) And so they gave me, you know, I played Akka the Goblin and Snow Queen and the Goblin. I mean, they gave me the great roles, you know. And I did play the female clothespin in uh, Pinot and Pinette, which was more of a straight role with long blonde hair and yeah. I got to run screaming down the aisle chased by a black widow spider um so it it, it really um and I always never felt like male female you know that like I had to be the ingenue you know or the straight person it immediately opened me up to character mm-hmm. and so that that started me right off as people should be started off when their imagination is still really kicking and you're not like afraid of what other people are going to think about you so much right. with this range and and with these great roles Akala Goblin in uh, you know the Snow Queen and the Goblin yeah I start out encapsulated in an ice block you know with dry ice all foaming around me and then I jump out it was you know it was great yeah if that doesn't get you started I don't know what <laughs> everything's downhill from there <laughs> But that dry ice back in those days, it was nasty stuff. I don't remember don't? really. No, it was all no. so cool. You just, you yeah, know, you had to cool, sit but... inside this. Well, I was inside of a a, a box, you oh, know, okay. that was had clear sides. So it wasn't like I was sitting in the dry ice. But uh-huh. yeah, I, I don't yeah. remember the taste of it. Maybe you had yeah. a different in the UK. Uh, you maybe do. Maybe. It's, it's, we have a cheaper <laughs> brand because we're a rock and roll band that weren't doing so well. I think so. Maybe. Yeah, maybe, yeah, maybe yours was t- touched with formaldehyde. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is why I preserve my good looks. Exactly. So. <laughs> I bet I could have used that. So anyway, uh, the vocally, I do think that from the beginning I was stretched. Um, although I do think p- people have different uh, abilities with their voices, mm-hmm. they have different fortes with their voices, and also there are certain limitations that you want to try to, um, you know, push against. Some of them are not not necessary. Some can just be habitual or patterning, and in that yeah. case, you really want to try to try to break out of that. Right. I find myself sometimes falling into that. Like I need to find new characters for these stories because some of them are being reused reused <laughs> repurposed yes, um, they are. well that happens I mean I mean think of what we're asked to do right how many characters and of course you've got a certain landing place that you know is solid 
And I never separate the voice and the body. The voices, I never look at them as voices. I look at them as characters because mm -hmm. the body, I can't do some of my voices if I don't have the body configuration. I simply can't do it. I will hurt my voice or it won't come out. So it has to be part of the energy of that. But I, I know what you're saying about how do we really find this unique character and this unique living voice that yet can switch immediately to another one right. in a moment and it and it takes uh they are all a little bit different in a way we have to be a master of illusion and deception because it's impossible almost what's asked of a storyteller but in a way we have to be completely authentic right we do absolutely authentic because yeah, it doesn't work if you're not yeah but at the same time you can say well this character can talk faster mm -hmm. you know i mean you and that's why i mean like illusion or or skill or craft or a little bit of delusion mm -hmm. you know you can try to make a, a construct that kind of because the audience needs to know immediately that it's someone different right so you can choose something that's kind of like a big broad thing like that and just make a decision and if it works fine but of course yes it has to be grounded but so um, yeah yeah did you make? Did you do character voices when you were a kid growing up? I mean, outside of being plays, no. You didn't like mimic, you know, s mm. speed buggy or anything like that. No, I don't remember doing that. I, I don't remember. No, um, I really don't remember. I mean, I the the time that I did voices was for the for the theater, you know. I mean, if I was doing a character. Right. Yeah. No, I didn't do a lot of mimicking. I mean, although I think mimicry is the fundamental thing. You you hear it and you try to imitate it. I think that's one of the fundamental, you know, things that it, it is easy in a way, but you really do have to mimic. You have to listen. Mimic. Yeah. You, you have to listen. You have to mimic. Um, I at one point wanted to write this story called Mimesis or something like that about the this idea that this was this transformative character that could like kind of you know be like all characters would through my through through being like them. Oh wow! Didn't happen. It didn't. <laughs> no, it didn't happen. <laughs> How many of these projects do we have? Oh, in, we don't in the back even want, We don't want to know. <laughs> That's true. So when you grew up, were, were there storytellers in your family, or were there, was there drama in your family? I mean, when I say drama, I mean acting. <laughs> Kind yes, of. there was drama. Um, well, yeah, um, and I didn't realize it until I became a storyteller. I didn't really realize what I had been seeing because I didn't know it was it was possible or what it was. Because it was normal. Yeah, it was normal. It was like, it was part of my my father's family. They were in Maine. They'd been, you know, from the 1600s. So. They were, you know, living on family land. They would gather around the kitchen table at my uncle's every evening. When, you know, I was living in Connecticut when we visited. And my uncle Roy, I mean, he was just, he would just, he was a big guy. And, and, and he just, the minute he was going to start a story, it was always the same. He just, he just taking a breath and he just kind of leaned back in his chair and he'd go, well, <laughs> well, I remember and then it would just be going off and it was so he was so good and it was crazy crazy stuff you know like with the hosses and with the with the pranks that he would play and hitting people in the head with stones and and then tragic stories from our family that 
um, he had learned from his mother, our grandmother, because he was the kid who was the youngest and stayed in the kitchen. The kid who stays in the kitchen and helps their mom prepare the meals hears the stories. And he was the one. Yeah, Angela Klingler said the same thing. Uh, She was always hanging out with her grandmother. Yeah. And there were stories that she, or a story that she shared at, at her grandmother's funeral that she thought everybody in the family knew. And she was the only one that knew it because she was the one that hung out in the, in the kitchen with her grandmother. The kitchen. Yeah. You know, I mean, and she would tell him all the family story, And I recorded him. But it was also because of the influence of storytelling that I realized, oh my God, I do come from a tradition. My dad also told stories um, you know, we'd sit on his lap, we were kids, and he'd tell us, my sister and I, stories about being in World War Two because he was oh, in wow. the World War for 10, well, he was in the World War for the whole time that it existed, but he had gone to enlist for four years to get money for college, and then just when he was supposed to be released, uh, they were, he was on the Enterprise, the aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. and they were heading towards Hawaii, towards Pearl Harbor, Ooh. and they were late. And so because they were late leaving California to go to Pearl Harbor, as they approached Pearl Harbor, the entire um, fleet was burning. Oh, my God. And he told us that story. And we were just young girls, you know, just sitting on his lap. I mean, we were that young. And, and he said to us, I don't even know why he told us, he said the most amazing thing he said is there were hundreds of men out on the deck. He said the most amazing thing was that nobody said a word. And that's because they were just, it was one of those moments in time where the enormity of an outside situation is so overwhelming that time just stops and everything just stops and you know that the world is gonna change. Wow. So, I mean, he he had troubles because of he worked in the engine room and for the next six years they were in the ward they were called the gray ghost the enterprise so they had to the japanese had thought that they had eliminated the entire fleet but they had not eliminated the enterprise so it was called the gray ghost after that because it got out and then it just became you know never went back into port just for the beginning part, it just was our only ship, and he was signed up immediately, but then mm-hmm. it was six years in the engine room, wow. which was very stressful. Yeah. And when he got out, when he went up to my aunt's up in Maine, um, not the wife of my Uncle Roy, but his sister, his soft-voiced sister, she said he would sleep on their couch with one foot on the floor because he was ready to jump up in a minute's notice and his nerves were really his nerves were really gone if something happened he wouldn't ask you he would he was just immediately um his blood pressure was through the roof you know anything like uh, well when i said i swallowed a fish bone <laughs> i suppose that's not nothing right <laughs> but it was but, really, it was but for him it was just like and i'm just like pointing at my pointing at my mouth and and you know waving my hands <laughs> and then they took me to the hospital and they gave me barium to swallow uh-huh. and i could feel the fish bone go down oh. and then they told me that no the, that i never had a fish bone 
And that's when I learned to distrust medical science. <laughs> yeah, there you go. There you go. So were there any other family storytellers other than your dad and your uncle? What about your mum's side? Were there storytellers there? Well, they were just very funny people. Yeah. They were just wacky. And my father was from the country. It was like country mouse and city mouse. And my mom was from the city, from oh, Bangor, yeah. Maine. And they had all these... Bangor, Maine's a city. Well, if you'd seen my dad's farm and known about them doing logging and yeah, all the different things they did, you would say that it was the city. Yeah. Um, and so she would always have these weird, she would laugh, you know, laugh, and she'd, she'd say things like, oh, you're, you know, you're running around like a fart in a mitten. <laughs> you know, I was like, okay. You know, you, she had yeah. all these colorful, funny sayings that I think she got from my grandfather. They were just, they just had a lot of fun. But she didn't really tell stories. Right. No. They just had a good sense of humor. She had a great life. sense of humor. Yeah. yeah. My mom used to say, like, a fart in a colander. You well, like I'll see your mitten and yeah. you can yeah. raise your call. I think a colander is good. <laughs> maybe it got like telephone. It got lost yeah, in the translation yeah. because my people, um, well, my mom's side was like Scotch and then Scotch Irish. And my dad's side was more like uh, English and Welsh and, you know, British Isles general. Is there any Native American? No, my grandfather always told us there was, but apparently there was not. I think he was thinking that because he was very tall and he was a little bit but no no there's none okay no i just have fallen in love with everything about native culture and the native people and right. this land because we are on this land yeah. and i was very lucky that my father had been grown up in the landscape because he would take me out and he would show me what i could eat oh you so, know so you were raised as a not as a forager but you knew the foraging Skills. Yeah, yeah, well, we just, yeah, just, you know, pick it up and we just eat it. So I wasn't afraid, you know, right. and I really wasn't afraid of germs or bugs or this or that. But he would just show me, you know, different things to eat and we just go but out. But you didn't wear a crash helmet on your bike either. <laughs> <laughs> no, <laughs> we didn't. No, no. Nobody did. No. So are there any stories that you remember from your childhood? Well, um, I, I think just the, the usual. I mean, I was fascinated by Peter Pan, of course. I mean, mm -hmm. this is... And I, I never felt, as I was saying, that, that you, you know, I was a girl and I couldn't do this and I couldn't do that. So this is kind of a character that is not really masculine and not really feminine and can do whatever they want and could fly yeah. was like totally fascinating to me. And so I would try to think, how can I fly? And uh, so I tried. Um, I would put on my blue, and I was fascinated with um, Mighty Mouse too. Mm -hmm. You know, yeah, he was yeah. like really buff. Yeah. You know, and, and little, but he was really buff. And he'd go, here I come to save the day. You know that. Yeah. So I would put on my blue sweater and tie it around my neck, and I would run down the hill at my elementary school, and then I'd jump off and try to fly. It didn't work. Uh, but then uh, dandelions have that puff yeah. on them. And I somehow got the idea that if I blew off the puff of the dandelion, it was flying through the air. And if I ran and if I caught it in my mouth and kept running, I would be able to fly. So I spent a lot of time doing that. And it was hard for my father because that means there's more dandelions. Yeah. 
<laughs> kept trying to say practical why don't you pick up them and put them in the something or other you know to yeah. try you know but no i wanted to, to fly yeah i thought that mighty mouse i would like look out our window in our in our bedroom my sister's in my bedroom out to the pasture which was near us and i would imagine that mighty mouse would fly in and he would land on the windowsill she'd be like what are you doing i said nothing but i was waiting for my love <laughs> oh, wow. that's fun did you ever have dandelions growing out of your ears from eating all those seeds? I did not. No, I didn't have them growing in my stomach either. No. Well, that's a good thing. Yeah. So, what, what, who, <clears throat> how did you switch over from like going back to the drama and the theatre? How did you switch over? What What did you see or what did you hear that made you think, oh, that storytelling, I like that? Yeah. I mean, it was just because the... The revolution was going on, the revival was going mm-hmm. on, um, which I heard about peripherally. I mean, I was in the theater circuit, so mm-hmm. I'd known when Jay did A Village Heroes. I had even seen it, but it didn't really enter my mind, oh, he's doing storytelling. I didn't even think about that, or oh, wouldn't it be fun to be all the characters? I just knew that... You just that, saw that as a performance piece. Yeah, it was a performance at the theater, you know, I was still looking at myself as an actress that mm-hmm. or actor that wanted to do things. So, But I was in a children's theater, and there were two things that happened in that children's theater. And one was that we were doing a bunch of folk tales. Mm-hmm. And so uh, we would travel to the different schools and do this collection of folk tales that was directed by someone called George Capaccio. Okay. And uh, when the folk tales were happening... The kids in the audience, they became so absorbed. They were just, you know the stillness. Yeah. We, yeah. we know what it is. You're involved in the narrative, completely involved. And I had not seen that before. And I was like, what is that? What is this magic? What is this magic? And George Capaccio, who was directing, was also working as a storyteller on the side. And I was like, what's that? Uh-huh. And I never saw him do his storytelling, but I thought, well, what, what? So you tell a story. And I wanted at that point to explore nature and animal characters because of theater work that I had done with someone from the Polish Theater Lab that had us working with animal characters. And I thought, well, if I do storytelling, I can explore animal characters. I don't have to wait. So you've been into this whole ecological thing for a long time then. Well, I have anyway. I've always had the nature um, love, um, but to find a way to actually have it manifest in my creative work has been a big search for me Uh, because regular theater, well, the chances that you're going to have something that's going to really ask you to, to intuit nature and plumb the depths of the human nature relationship and of course we are part of nature but still Mm -hmm. we've got this feeling of otherness so um so there was involved with a with a theater director in fact that huge bunch of papers on that table out there is the chapters of the book that i'm writing on this workshop that i took with him but we did animal characters and I'd done that before in theater, but it was nothing like that. He was so serious, and we really went into the characterizations in such a way that we were really embodying them in a very deep way, right. not a superficial way. It's very easy to do a superficial representation to an animal because they are so different. But to actually really embody them um, 
was very profound and he was using it as an exploration of theater. So I began, I worked with the story Monkey and Shark, which is ridiculous yeah. because it's a crazy, stupid story that I'm embodying a shark because it's mental. You know, the monkey is like a human character, obviously. But I also worked with the Native American story Jumping Mouse, yeah. um, which Heimholtz Storm has in his Seven Arrows book. And um, later, once I knew what I was supposed to do, gave me permission to tell it. But um, I fell in love with that story, and it was a way to really... Yeah, I fell in love with that story, too. I think I was probably 18, 20 when I oh, first came across that, and it was just like, what is this? That is one of the most profound stories yeah. that there is, and it arrived perfectly, as some of the Native stories have done, as some of Joe Bruchek's stories have arrived perfectly. It's like, you be careful. You decide, don't really mess with them. Yeah. Try to realize them, but don't really mess with them. And that's what I realized when, you know, it, it just falls out of your mouth. It falls out of your being. And, and tinkering with it looks like that. Yeah. Um, to be jumping topics, but it's related to what I was just saying. I was at the Scottish International Storytelling Festival, which is very traditional tale-oriented. Mm -hmm. um, and I think I got there because of the Kurdish... Oh, my, right. my project yeah, yeah. gathering the Kurdish stories because they really want the the gathering of the stories. But uh, for a, an olio, I told the story uh, Three Green Ladies. It's collected by Ruth uh, Ruth Tongue, right. Forgotten Folk Tales of the English Counties, and that's a story that arrived very, 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 very fully. Exactly. It's just you don't want to mess with it. It's yeah. it's just. It's the language is oral. Yeah. The, it's strong. It's just, it's just compelling. It will arrive if you don't mess with it. So I told that story there, and it was very interesting because they, some of them, some of the people who were working there had a, or, or a tellers there or around it had a very different idea that you really needed to adapt a story or you weren't really doing anything. And I think that's stories retelling is very important, but there are some that are really yeah, perfect. And yeah. so it was very funny. I was having a conversation with this person, and I was talking to him about the story was so perfect. I really didn't do anything. If I if I did anything, it was mm -hmm. very 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 light. And he was telling me that I really was not doing that. That's really not storytelling, and I hadn't really done anything. He said, for instance. At this one moment in the story, I've added in this detail where the younger brother looks up at the middle brother and says, remember what day it is. I said, oh, darn. I said, I forgot to put that in. It's in the actual original. Right. So he had even completely forgotten right. what was in the original I text. Know. But it was just this crazy moment. But I think what I'm trying to say is that, a, a, you know, adaptation is really, it's a delicate art. It's, it's like an, op, it's even... It, it can be a weave or it can be an operation. You have to be Yeah, I, I would delicate. agree with that. I've, yeah. There's two stories that I can think of that I've changed. Um, one of them is the three feathers because in the original story, um, the, the boy, no, it's not. It's the boy who can change himself into a falcon, an ant, and a, and a lion. And the boy comes up to these creatures that are fighting over this dead horse. And they say, we can't decide which bits we're going to eat. And the boy says, well, 
the ant should eat the inside because it can get into all the nooks and crannies. The lion, being the biggest, should have all the, like the choice pieces of meat, and then the hawk should get the delicate pieces like the liver and the kidney and stuff like that. And they said, "Oh, that's brilliant! Why didn't we think of that? We will give you the ability to shape shift." And I was like, "That's really lame." So, that <laughs> and so I decided that I would adapt it. And and this old man was being attacked by these three creatures. So that when the old man gives the boy the gift of sh being able to shapeshift, the boy's actually earned it, right? Mm. And it's not just... Not just because he had the knowledge, right. but also because he uh, did something... He made a sacrifice. His... Yeah, he had to make mm. a sacrifice. He had to make mm. that decision to put mm. himself at risk mm -hmm. to gain that, mm -hmm. which makes it a more, I think, makes it mm -hmm. a more powerful story. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, those are also plot elements. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And even beyond plot elements... Uh, because we're we're breathing life into it and we're doing it for a modern audience. There's also how does the moment happen? So sometimes we're just embroidering yeah. on stuff, right? You know, endlessly. Yes. Um, and with folktales, as you know, mm -hmm. you cut to the chase, you keep it clean. But I can, you know, you you know the change you made. Right. You worked with the change you made and you felt it emotionally. Yes. When you went in and you were experiencing that moment, you felt something missing. I did. So, and, and think about it, if you look at all the different versions, you know, there, that's how changes got made in different ways over time, because when it enters the storyteller mm -hmm. and their feelings, it's like the river isn't going quite that way. Right, yeah, which is why, you know, I, there's a, a favorite storyteller of mine whose name shall not be mentioned, but they very much focus on the traditional straight telling um, of the story to honor that story. My feeling is, is that, but you don't know the original version of that story because the version that was written down in the 16, 15, 13, 1200s is not the same version that was told in the five, six, seven hundreds. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. You know, and because we do, we, mm -hmm. we change the story because mm -hmm. our culture mm -hmm. changes, mm -hmm. our technology changes. Even back then, our technology was changing. Mm -hmm. You know, and so we adapt the stories to fit the new technology that we're living in. Mm -hmm. right. Anyway, no, I think, but I think it's very <clears throat> important to remember that when printing came, mm -hmm. which is what you're talking about, right. when printing came, things got fixed. Right. And. Um, I ran into a lot of that with different myth mythology pieces, for instance, the mistletoe legend of the mistletoe or Balder um, right. story, that it is fixed in this mythic form, but also there were folkloric aspects of the story that continued on with the usage of the mistletoe. So um, a lot of times something will be fixed as a myth and the folktale will continue to devolve in some cases or actually show what may have been in the original in some other cases like when I worked with Deirdre of the Sorrows I had to mm -hmm. make a big decision am I going to go for the toying am I going to go for this version that is so raw and so powerful or am I going to work with the folkloric version which has a happy little yes. trees growing out of their graves at the end and right. you know I went for the toying but yeah. it was a conscious choice after looking at you know what was going on yeah do you want to talk about Deirdre? Sure, we could talk about Deirdre. Tell us about Deirdre. Deirdre. Oh, my God. And then we'll talk about Gawain, which is completely different. <laughs> completely different. Yeah. I mean, these are two big uh, stories that right. 
um, evolved over a long time. And actually, Tom, my husband, who was in here, had a big influence on helping me to understand how to uh, work with music, for sure. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, also just kind of be in the real uh, scenes of the story. I mean, J.O. Callahan talks a lot about scenes, sometimes saying, I create scenes. Um, and Tom writes for the musical theater. So sometimes a storyteller will have a problem just go on describing, 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 describing. But you know that the great storytellers like Shakespeare, boom, you open up Hamlet and there's suddenly they're waiting for a ghost. Right. Okay. So with Deirdre... Can I backpedal a bit? When you say that these, these, these pieces are, are, are long in the making, you're talking about how you made your versions of these stories, right? Yes. Right, right. Okay, yeah, yeah, my retelling right. of these stories took place over years. And in fact, uh, Gowan, or New Age Gowan, I call it, just had another little leap when I did it down because I, I've been working on the, how to make that. You want With your stories, you want the story to arrive. Yes. And you can feel it as a teller. It's like it's not quite there yet, you know. I mean, it, it works, but... So Gowan took a big step forward just last month after not having been told for four years. And, but it oh, did. Oh, wow. It was great. So Deirdre um, is, you know, got me thinking about the whole Celtic storyteller, the bard. And the, it's a heightened story. I, I did endless amounts of research into what the life of the Celts was like around the, you know, 100, uh, you know, BC or AD. I don't remember what, uh, there, there's different letters now, which I can't remember for, for the time, that time period, but what was it like? How, and, and they come in as just little bits, just a little touch here or there, because you can't, but you have to have the bulk of it. Yeah. So I did a lot of reading a lot of research what were they wearing what was their houses like what was their relationships like all that that kind of thing and then there was the the story itself and um tom and i were back and forth because he wrote the story and margot did the celtic harp but i came up with a a very beginning quatrain for mm -hmm. the story. And when I came up with that, he wrote in his own notes, that's what Diane means by the story. Because he was trying to figure out where I was going to hang my hat on the character, on the meaning of it. And really it was, um, it was that it's the beauty of sorrow. Because Deirdre means sorrow. They mm -hmm. named her sorrow. Um, and you know... My husband's Irish. Melancholy. Oh my God, he loves the melancholy. But it's like beautiful to him. Mm -hmm. So it's like it's like this beautiful woman that they couldn't deal well with, and the whole story goes down this slippery slope into the ending. But um, in the end, I used some of my understanding of mythology. To have the beauty of Deirdre now be in the Irish landscape, which is so breathtakingly beautiful. And Lavarcom, uh, her the one who caretakes Deirdre, says at the end, I see her sometimes when I'm out walking in the early morning. I mean, imagine a more beautiful time of day. We're in the, yeah. in, the, in the early morning when this earth is so beautiful, you'd think your heart would break. 
because I think that's what her beauty was like. She said, it's she that haunts this land and will not leave. And then it goes, Deirdre, that was the name she was getting. But the whole idea is that um, she is part of the beauty of Ireland. And they, they say that Deirdre is the example of this feeling of longing around love, this feeling of incredible longing and beauty. So, and there were things I had to pull in along the way that were in the toying. I mean, there's, there's brutality yeah. Oh, yeah. and, uh, you know, just brutal images. So you've got, the language has also got to have these moments of tenderness and beauty and humor. Yeah. And then there's the, the harp music. And, um, you know, I just got to give it up for Tom. I mean, I was just watching him work with melody whether it was his own or a folkloric tune. For instance, Deirdre is... Oh, so he mixed the two? He did mix the two. Oh, nice. Deirdre is, uh, been... She falls in love with Nisha, uh, hopelessly in love with him. And he is afraid to love her, but then just falls totally in love with her. But, of course, the king uh, kills him through uh, deceit and then keeps Deirdre for himself. And he says to her, the King Conovar says to Deirdre at one point, he says, Deirdre, what do you hate most in the world? Because he's so furious because she's so sad, he can't even have her even when he's got her with him. So mm -hmm. he, he says to her, what do you hate most in the world? And she says, you. And Ogan, who slew my Nisha. He says, then I'll take you to see Ogan. Then you'll have us both together. I mean, that's the level that we're at. So she's in the chariot with him. They're riding out to meet Ogun. There's this beautiful melody called Searching for Lambs. Mm -hmm. It's exquisite. It's haunting. It's beautiful. Tom wanted that melody used at that part. So she's riding out in the chariot, and... There's this moment where she's she starts to loosen her hair because she's so desperate and she's gonna be killing herself soon. And Conovar says, maybe I'll keep you a while longer, not little Ogun have you. It's all building. So Tom has this searching for lambs melody and it just starts increasing and it starts speeding up and it's speeding up and it's speeding up as all this is happening until she's letting her fair hair lean and lean and you know, her skull is crushed to fragments. So it's just this incredibly beautiful melody, but it's just driving like the chariot is driving. Faster they rode through the barren land, right? The barren land. Yeah. Because you've got the fisher king. You've got the, the king with the wound. Right. Through the barren land towards Ogun. And he says to her, soon between Ogun and I, you will be like a sheep eyeing two rams. Oy. And she just looks at him, and then she starts to undo her hair, as Nisha had done before. And she just undoes it. And he's saying, oh, maybe I'll keep you a while longer. The music is increasing. And, but she does it because she, she's remembering him, and she's honoring him. And then, boom, she... Sorry, I probably popped the recorder. <laughs> she, um, so anyway, I mean, you know, with, we're working with someone like Tom. He's, he's worked in musical theater all right. these like. And when I'm telling a story and the music is going, I don't have to work. I don't have to do anything. You just ride. I just ride. Yeah. I just ride. Uh, so it's quite a beautiful marrying of melody and moment. Right. 
not just story, but moment. And usually we pull the music in around descriptive passages, especially if just Margot, my Celtic Harper, and I are working. We will stick to descriptive passages. If we're not, we usually talk to Tom because he really knows how to keep music there but not intrusive in in action. He can really do that. Yeah, or complementary to the action. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's yeah. right. That it, and it's usually because of simplicity. Like I'll just do a few alternating. I mean, there's something to be said for that. <laughs> there is. <laughs> so, so before you get on to Gawain, you said something about the, the amount of research that you did into this. You you did research into the costumes and not costumes, the type sure. of clothing that they would clothing wear, that they wore, and the, the period the, of the time, housing and all the, that kind the, of stuff. The the role of the bard, the role of the storyteller, because um, the. Deirdre's mother is the wife of the bard. You know, I didn't know which direction I was going to. Right. Avarkum is a satirist. You know, I didn't know which direction I had to even go to initially with the mm-hmm. story, so I wanted to research So how much, how much of that um, came out in the telling? I mean, how, and how did it influence you in the telling, all that research? Well, you get a feeling for the times and for the brutality of the times. Um, I mean, they were they would go around with their the heads of their enemies tied to their belts. Right. Okay, did not appear in the story. You know. <laughs> well, there's a line. <laughs> one can jump over it. I mean, I did at one point, I did, and it's just too distracting mm-hmm. for the audience, but I did, yeah. there's one, like, it's this one moment, it, you know, because I was reading a lot about what they did with the heads, and they did this with the heads, and they did with this the heads. It just came out in one line that when when Deirdre's mother, before she's born, has to go serve the king, mm-hmm. uh, she rises slowly, gathers her heavy skirts, and hurries through the open courtyard where seven enemy heads, mounted on spikes, stare past her at nothing. That's it. That's it. But it's that moment of going through yeah. the courtyard, and there's just these heads, gray, green in the moonlight. You know, <laughs> love it, love it. And so, Brutal. You, yes. And so, with 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 Deirdre, you went all in, all in. And then with Gawain, you took a you took a U turn, a, a very big U turn. Very big. Well, I tried, I tried to do a a classic telling of yeah. Gawain for and somebody, if for years I tried to do a classic telling, and I just couldn't. The meaning wouldn't arrive. Right. It wouldn't arrive. It's a very difficult, you've got all this excitement and then what you're coming down to at the end is he's humble and, and it's, it's, it's a heady ending, how the meaning of it. So I just, I finally said, fine, I'll just modernize it. The other thing about Gowan is that the earlier- You say Gowan <laughs> and I say Gowan. <laughs> So the really early stories, he has no respect for, for much at all. But as the age of chivalry takes these stories, he becomes the, I don't want to use the word guardian, but he, he very much looks after women, and, 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 which is completely different to how he started off. Mm-hmm. So how did you meld all of that into this modern retelling? I didn't. Really, I didn't because I really felt like um, I wanted, what I ended up wanting was I wanted it to be, there's male-female relationships in it. Mm -hmm. 
and because of the whole testing of the lady at the end. Right. Right. The lady of the castle has to test Gowan to see if he's going to be honorable. Right. So there was male-female relationships in it, and I didn't want to... Uh, I really wanted to work with Gowan as a representation of the modern man and how the modern man is really trying to fulfill all these things. They're trying to be honorable. They're trying to discover their real self. They're trying to be true to their masculinity in whatever form it comes, and they're working very hard. But And so I wanted it to really be representative of this quest in modern time, uh-huh. which precludes uh, the kind of sword fighting and guns and stuff that the Green Knight comes yes. in with. So yes. I wanted the modern man to Chop have to, to have to be encounter the same blanking challenge mm-hmm. as the Green Knight delivers. But now he's in this new persona. It's like holy blank. Yeah. What? am I going to do now? You know, (laughs) but it's what's being asked of me. So uh, I really wanted to keep it in. I didn't really deal with the chronology, you know, the developing character of Gowan or anything like that. And of course the, the three ladies at the end become three stereotypes of womankind. You know, you've got the lady in the bouffant hairdo, and then you've got the um, the oversexed, oversexed older woman, <laughs> and then you have the Golden queen, <laughs> and then you have the queen, who is really is a queen. So, I really wanted him to have to ace basically the challenges that each of those three stereotypical women uh-huh. I don't know if they're called archetypes or more stereotypes yeah, I wanted no. to ace them <laughs> ace them so um, I had a lot of fun oh my god I had oh, a I lot of fun oh my god um, and so that's what happened it really I didn't I was forced to I mean I worked in it for I mean two or three years and I was just like wow. it's not really happening Yeah. and I went and I just, I remember I was walking to the pond and I remember being at the pond and just going, oh, I think I might modernize it. And what about if there wasn't just one lady at the end? It just started coming. One lady at the end, but three ladies at the end. And what if the green knight comes in on a bungee cord? And, you know, and, <laughs> and then I was just having fun. Yeah. And I read archaic books like the Oak King and the Holly King. I mean, I understood all the mythology that might be buried there about, you know, the you know the Green Knight coming in. He's the Green Man, or he's the Holly King, and blah 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 blah. And there's elements of that. Yeah. yeah. Like when he pulls out a staff, the Green Knight pulls out a staff. He holds it aloft, and it sprouts holly leaves. It's a dead. Yeah. Staff, and it sprouts holly leaves and bright red berries, and then they, they just they rain down. You know, they're they're dead, and then they rain down. So there's there are elements where you can say, oh, that's the holly king, or you know, but it's all now in the fabric of the, of the tapestry. I mean, that's the yeah. other thing. I read books on tapestries and <laughs> But this is nothing. This is what people do for research. I mean, yeah, I was out. Working with this, talking with this guy, Bill Carter, who was a life photographer and another photographer, and he was working on something for the Kurds. Mm-hmm. Is and, this recently? Yes, this was last, uh, well, we're in two, it was in two, January 2019, maybe 
and and we were staying Tom and I were staying in his office and mm-hmm. we walked in there he had 15 books not on the Kurds on Kurdish carpets he said you can tell a lot of people about people by their carpets but he had books I mean it was filled it was filled it was filled but just 15 books on their carpets it's very hard to find one book on their carpets and he had 15 he had 15 wow so research because you don't know right. it gets in your bones it it suddenly you'll get an idea you know we put all this stuff in and then it, it it's it's all their fertile ground and suddenly something starts growing but it's just a touch but we can't always mechanically like say i'm going to do this research because i want to use it here or i want to put in this element here oh, yeah 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 yeah. Um, yeah you just got to dive in and see what comes out you got to see what comes out yeah absolutely because when, when I first started doing this, and this isn't about me, um, you know, I didn't do that much research. But then when I got into the, the deeper stories, as opposed to like, you know, Goldilocks and the Three Bears, but even Goldilocks and the Three Bears, it started off as a fox. Oh. And Goldilocks was a fox, and then she was a vixen. Oh. And then, yes, right? Wow. Yeah. And the vixen got misconstrued at some point along the line, she became a young girl, <laughs> right? Oh. Or did it? I don't know. Yeah. But, you know, it's, it's when you... The research, you know, you can have a story and you don't quite understand it. It's like, well, what's the time place of this story? Then where does it come from geographically? What was going on historically? Yeah. You know, and you know, was this a war zone for many, many years in the Middle Ages? And it's like, oh yes, it was. Well, that makes sense. Why this story is about this, and and that, that's why that story is about that. You know, stone soup. Yeah. You know, I didn't realize how deep it was anchored in history until I read a book on the age of war up to 1750. Mm. And I read this book and I was like, this is what stone soup is all Mm. about. You know, this like 600 page book (laughs) is summed up in stone soup. Yeah. And it's just remarkable what comes out. It's in that story somehow. I mean, maybe it's also some, there's been some great illustrators of that story. Right. I mean, I love John Muth's Buddhist version of it with the three monks, right? Oh, wow. Yeah. But the whole idea of coming into the village and everybody's just like, nobody's home. No, you can't. I mean, that was a common, right? A common Right, because situation. the soldiers would go through these villages on the way to war and they would destroy these towns. They would All the food supply would be yeah. gone because they couldn't carry all the food with them. Yeah. And then on the way back out, they would do the same. Yeah. And because these wars were usually held in the same places over the same territory, mm-hmm. when the soldiers came into town, it's like, no wonder nobody wants to talk to them. There are historical records from, from the 1500s, 1200s, letters that sextons wrote to other people. Oh, some soldiers came into our town today and we hung them. Ugh. You know, yeah. because they're soldiers. Yeah. And these guys, they didn't even want to be soldiers in the first place. Mm. They're just farmers that have been told by their lords yeah. they've got to go and fight. Right, right. You know, and it's, it's just... Wow. You, the depth of that story, when you know the history behind it, is yeah. phenomenal. yeah. You tell it, of course, don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, I'll have to hear you tell it sometime, Simon. I would love that. I would so, love that. what do you think is the most rewarding piece that you've done? I mean, to me, I mean, I've seen you do little bits here and there, and I, I love what you do, and, and you have a, a real deep passion for what you do. I mean, that comes across just talking to you. But is Deirdre, do you think, the most rewarding piece? Or do you think there's some other work that is your most rewarding piece? Or is it something completely um, hidden? Well, I mean, the reward is, um, you know, uh, 
I, you know, you, you, of course, with each story, you're entering a world. So always the, the idea is, did I, did I enter that world? Was I free in that world? Was my audience in tune with me? Did we, did we go many places together? Because really that's, um, that's what it is. I, I, I'm, just to fly with a story, I mean, that's that's just rewarding, and it can happen with the monkey and shark. <laughs> oh, I can. mean, when you're on. So <laughs> I, I don't really, um, I, I mean, if, can I, you know, I've gone deeper in different ways with different stories, and they've informed my life. Oh, talk about that. Well, I think that, you know the stories that raise a question about really what what is possible in this world that maybe what we think is possible is not all that's possible those stories still are like very big uh questions to me in fact i'm thinking about working on a piece coming out of one of those things now is is the the question there's a story that's told in a lot of different cultures mm-hmm. And it says that at a certain period of time, all of the creatures shared the same language. We could understand each other. And you saw Salmon of Wisdom down in Connecticut. Um, That's um, the true story about being camping and then... uh, I haven't seen it. Oh, you haven't seen it? Okay. Salmon of Wisdom is a story that that deals with that language of of animals motif. But... What would it be like if it is true that some of the different cultures say that we could at one point really have this ability to understand each other and that it was taken away, but could it actually come? Is there a way that we can? So this is a question Ooh. for me. Can Is there a way that we can understand it again? Is there a way that we can communicate, that we can hear in a different way, that we can see in a different way, that we can uh, have our human presence in a different way? So I think encountering older um, relationships with the natural world through story, mm-hmm. through myths, through nature myths, I have a lot of questions about, even about, let's say, about that, mm-hmm. about the role of gratitude in the world. Oh, yeah. I really feel like humans, we have this, we might have some abilities that the other creatures don't have and as they talk about the circle you know that 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 it is a circle of giving and receiving when you think of all we receive and you remember that in the older cultures gratitude was a very important it was huge yeah but what if that is something that we are we are keeping the circle going with that well we've lost it right now i don't think there is any gratitude it's just this, you know, I mean, I'm not talking about just the states, but it's like, you know, I see it in England. You know, there's the, it's just this consumer society that we've become, and there is no gratitude. It's just take, take, take. And it's all all can happen in a moment. It all can happen in a moment. And I've really been thinking a lot about that. You know, the the performance that I do in the groves. Right. I take audiences, myself and the Celtic Harper, we go into these groves of trees and we sit by the different grove of trees and we tell a story from a 
whatever culture we find one that really resonates for that tree Czechoslovakia or the Czech people the birches Mm -hmm. the Japanese the cherry and we take a walk in between and then we go to the different trees now that is satisfying in a very particular way because people come in and we're caught in the time I have to be I have to be I have to be people are not present Mm -hmm. but through stories and sitting and walking when we're finally at the last stop and sun is setting around the time, most beautiful time of the year, right? The solstice. Mm-hmm. And we finish the last story of the birch tree and the golden birch leaf, the imaginary golden birch leaf, you know, in my hand is then placed on the ground and my hand presses it in. Everyone, we're just sitting there. We're just sitting there and nobody wants to move. Yeah, We have reached a state of peace a state of exchange because they've been able to see the trees and think about ways that the people thought about them the whole time so that is rewarding yeah um and the stories about the kurdish people are rewarding in a different way right uh gathering the folktales of the kurds and getting to tell the story of meeting them, gathering the stories. And as one news review said, in the way the performance is an atonement. It's an atonement for uh, the way that we have the American government in particular with its arms sales to Turkey over time has betrayed the Kurds, which is really sad being in the period of time that we are right now, which mm-hmm. is the invasion of Syria by Turkey. Yeah. Um... Yeah. So how did you, what led you down this path towards collecting the the Kurdish stories? I met Kurdish refugees and I was very moved by their stories. Ah, their true stories. They were from Turkey. Mm -hmm. And then I found out about the U.S. complicity with Turkey, that it was selling Turkey the planes that the Apache Atal helicopters, these certain military devices that were allowing the Turks to go into the remote Kurdish areas and threaten them and kill them and do military operations against them in what had once been their only safe haven. So I hadn't really known the U.S. involvement before, and here I am facing these people that I'm feeling so compassionate for, and it just moved me to action. So I first started doing political action. I started trying to raise awareness, and then I thought, oh my gosh, I wonder what, since they they are forbidden to read and write Kurdish in Turkey, I wonder what their oral stories are like, their language, and I realized I was standing before, like in Ireland, yeah, right. Oh my gosh. And pe- Scotland. And, and Scotland. These yeah. people have been forbidden to speak their languages. Yeah. And it's the time to gather because if you don't do it now, it's going. This is the generation. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, people couldn't get in to do it. Or if they got in, they would be monitored by the Turkish government. So you had to do it really secretively. So it took me three years to build the network of uh, people that, you know, find the people. And, f- and raise the money to get in there. But it was a project that was not um, not made public at all. Not, and I, even after I came back, I was very careful to stay off the radio or this or that. Mm-hmm. 
because I wanted to go back and gather more stories. Right. So, I mean, I was just standing before, and what are you going to do? I mean, you're standing before this situation, you're going to say, well, gee, that's too bad. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you, so I remember when, you, when the book came out, you were, you were talking about it, and you said that people would open up, they, they would tell you their stories in Kurdish, and then they would open up their windows and their doors, and then they'd talk in Turkish. Oh. And then they would close the windows and the doors, and they'd talk to you in Kurdish again. Well, it was, it was sort of like this. I mean, they were, they're forbidden to, to speak or write Kurdish, so mm-hmm. um, th- it was a big consideration for them, and I only wanted the stories recorded in Kurdish. Um, and so, yes, there were, there were moments I would be in the village that the, everybody would be smoking, you know, yeah. I'm hearing the stories, everybody's smoking and I'm just like dying. <laughs> so I would, you know, would go yeah, over to... because they're not, they're not Marlboro Lights that they're smoking Holy either. crap. Well, I would bring Marlboros with me. <laughs> oh, you would? Oh, I brought cartons of Marlboros, you know, it was just like, here, <laughs> let's have some stories. So one, one village, they said, oh, a cigarette with my grandmother, a cigarette equals one story. So I handed him a carton of Marlboros. I was like, let's go. <laughs> But I went over to open the window, mm-hmm. and my guide said, you can't do that. There's spies in every village. Mm-hmm. They're paid for by the Turkish government. They're called the village guard. And um, if they hear the family speaking Kurdish in here, that's why we're keeping the windows closed. And, it, you know, there was a lot going on. I mean, I really wasn't allowed. My guide didn't want me to speak uh Kurdish, even though I knew rudimentary Kurdish, because an American in the villages speaking Kurdish would create alarms yeah because we were just moved from village to village and what were we doing we were recording folk tales on a little device like this no i had a video camera oh you did oh yeah okay yeah i've got hours and hours and hours and hours so is it going to be archived at some point yeah i I had a proposal no i don't know i had a proposal in that i wanted to create this actually called a a storytelling arc online Mm -hmm. where people could kurdish people just upload their stories because they can do it now but i was looking for funding and i didn't get it um but yes i would like it i mean now in the digital age it could be archived many different places these are mostly kurmanji kurdish stories that's a certain dialect but it's a main dialect Mm-hmm. Uh, they call them dialects, but there's different wordings of things. So I've got a I've got a slew of them, and they're they're beautiful. These tellers and some they just I fell in love with them. They were so wonderful, and I'd always have to drink copious amounts of tea, 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 and they'd feed me, and I could understand Kurdish. So at one point, I remember they gave me this like bowl of yogurt soup with this strange stuff in it. Mm-hmm. And I could hear the woman talking to the man. She was joking, I think. But she said, if she doesn't finish it, I'm going to kill her. <laughs> and she said, and she said it in Kurdish, but I understood. And I was like, wow, she has no idea that I know exactly what she's saying. You didn't let on either, did you? No, 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 no. <laughs> I ate the whole thing, though. <laughs> so the, yeah, so that, that was how a fire in my heart Kurdish tales came. It's Is it going to be another book? Do you think? I mean, I haven't read the first one yet. It's on my shelf, but no. I mean, it's really a collection of folk tales, and it really talks about the life, like how the stories appear in the life. Um, but imagine, you know, you have to say, okay, what kinds of stories am I hearing? Oh, there's a lot of fox tales. Let's do a section on fox tales. Oh, these are fairy tales. Let's put them in fairy tales. Um, so there's a lot of different. And also, there was the life. There was the games that they played. There was the food. It was all, uh, you know, and I spent 
the beautiful people. I uh, they shared everything with me. I it's not. I have thought about another book, but if I do something, uh, I would maybe try to do. Believe it or not, a pitch a movie, like oh, like okay. based on what I went through because I've got the performance a thousand doorways, which is the journey. And something like that, or pitch. I mean, it's one. You ask me how many yeah. ideas I have. Signed. Yeah. I got a lot. How do you feed yourself artistically? Feed? You mean food? You mean feed? You mean artistically? Yeah. Uh gee whiz! It doesn't take much. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't. It really? doesn't. I mean, I just I could sit alone in my room. Um, you know, I just. It's funny. I got this book recently called The Act of Will. Okay. And it's about all, it's an old book, but it's by this great team, um, Robert Asiglioli and Piero Ferrucci, who did another book. And if you're into guided imagery, Piero Ferrucci did this amazing thing called What We May Be, where you can, uh, it's a whole visualization book. But the act of will, and I thought, you can look at, like any process, like an artistic process, right. as an act of will, not will as in the way that it's commonly understood today like forcing yourself to do something you don't want to do but how do we bring something into being okay yeah. how do we bring something to gotcha. the light yeah and i really feel like that's what artists do we have that's why tormented artists are fine i'm a little bit of a tormented artist you know if i am not performing yeah. now because i'm used to performing I used to think I was going to be a visual artist, but now I'm used to performing. So if I'm not performing, I feel this like, uh, yeah. you know, something needs to happen. What needs to happen? So <laughs> start, start talking to strangers on the street. Then I'll start doing my movie. But no, oh my God. I remember I was dry. I was rehearsing a piece, you know, going over a story. I remember I was driving the car and I was doing a character, and I realized somebody was looking at me, and I was thinking, oh, note to self: yeah. try not to do that particular character when you're driving. Um, <laughs> when it's only when you roll your eyes and look to the car as they're passing. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know. So um, it comes out of the chaos, right? Mm -hmm. We get this. We yeah. get this. This inarticulate, and that's the thing. That's why people say to you, "Okay, find, go and find a story." You say to someone who hasn't been story, and and it it touches you. You may not even know why. Right. It's good if you don't know why, yeah, because that's so. the chaos. Yeah, that's that's the inarticulate. Something in you went like, eh. Mm -hmm. um, I hope that translates on audio. Um, but something <laughs> in you is... Diana Chikim is holding her belly and rubbing it. <laughs> um, I was actually kneading my belly. Kneading, um, But that's close. <laughs> so um, so some things, com things are coming out of the, the chaos. I do feed myself artistically by reading... I read a lot of technical books. Dream. Dreams. Okay. Like Ole Veldfeld tells this incredible book on dreams, the dimensions of dreams, like the different ways you can look at dreams because those are imaginary worlds. Yeah, they are. Yeah. So I feed myself sometimes on technical books about imaginary worlds, like the dimensions of dreams, like the writings of Mircea or Mircea Eliada, historian of religions. I spent my initial immersion into storytelling came with reading these incredible historians of re religion, Jung, Carl Carrieni. I immersed myself in those people who were looking at myths and traditional tales from the point of view of what was their function in the culture as religions 
or as actual stories that did something to and for the people. Right. And that informed all of my work. Yeah. And I'll still go back to them. But the act of will is really just, I really feel like the inspiration and the initial ideas, I've got that. Yeah. <laughs> That's I, why there's I a think million. We all do, right? Yeah, yeah. There's a million projects, but, you know, the whole idea of like. Uh, it's when your partner says, are you spreading yourself a little thin here? Do you think you should concentrate on one thing and head in that direction? Oh my God! Yeah, totally it's it's a that. it's a you know multitude of um, of riches, but but that's that's okay. It means we're in touch with the source, right? That is mm-hmm. the fountain. That is the source. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of water imagery really with it when you think about the story really finding its right course and yeah. the telling and um, but. Um, I can't remember what your question was, but <laughs> it's alright. It's alright. But I, you know, I think the thing for me about storytelling is that I, I hope it, it's about the Im- when we encounter a story, like mm-hmm. when we encounter a creature, I really feel like we need to look at it as uh, like a living entity. Yeah, I, I, I think that's very true. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I compare stories to being children. Yeah. You know, and I think, I think that there's, there's an element of truth to that because, you know, there's sometimes you go to a gig and you come with a plan and that story, that child is hidden away from shyness, but there's another one going, me, 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 pick me. Or, you know, there's, there's the errant child who, <laughs> you know, you start telling it and there's some, some kind of connection with the audience and it just becomes the most rambunctious child <laughs> in the room and you can't reel it back in and it just has a life of it. So, and that's, you know, again, some, I think sometimes when we have stories like that, that's what, you know, you were talking about Gawain, how that meant through a, a, a bit of a, a shift when you hadn't told it for four years. And it's, it's kind of like, you know, something comes out of the story that was never there before and it's like, oh my gosh, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. And if, you, if you're good and you write it down or you, it was so good that you remember it, then you can keep it. And then they grow. And, and change. I came back to Gowan at the same, with the same problem that I'd had that I left. I mean, it was, I had resolved it. I had gotten to it. But I went, you know what? I have not, the story has not yet arrived. So I was back at the same, facing oh, really? the same point that I had been. Is that why you hadn't told it in four years? No. No, no, it's um, it's an odd story to place, so it doesn't always come up in my repertoire. Right. Um, so it just was I had an opportunity to do it, and I thought, oh my God, it would be so fun to do this again. So, um, but uh, but I I think the the um, you know, I think we should change our terminology. You know, um, the terminology is I need I need a story to use for such and such. So the terminology, it's in the, and I did a, I'm working on this book. (laughs) Which is called, and when will it be available? It's called (laughs) The Golden Thread, Finding Meaning in Traditional Tales. And each chapter is gonna deal with a different kind of traditional tale. There'll be a section just on fairy tales, a section on general folk tales, a section on pourquoi tales, which I did actually for Nest. There's the the bulk of that oh, chapter is oh. done just on pourquoi tales uh, about these different imaginative landscapes and really um, how they each deserve uh, a different approach because they're different imaginary worlds. Uh, they're different, you know, uh, 
invisible worlds. I, I remember I was in Poland and I was sitting at my friend's kitchen and I was sitting opposite somebody who was working with headhunters. He was an anthropologist. And um, it was uh, a funeral that we were there for. And late into the night, you know, drinking coffee because we were young and stupid. Or was it vodka? <laughs> I was thinking if you're young and stupid, it might be vodka. Uh, it was probably, Who knows? probably vodka. <laughs> Maybe both. <laughs> probably both. <laughs> one to get the buzz and the other one to keep you awake. Oh God. <laughs> and um, he said, so what do you do? Uh, in his Polish accent, which I will not attempt at this moment. And I said, well, I'm a storyteller. And he said, uh, he said oh, you still exist. He said, it's good. He said, you take people to the invisible worlds. Yeah. And he didn't say world. He said worlds. You know, they're different. They are different. Um, and we had a long conversation after that. But I was really struck that he didn't say world. That they are different uh, landscapes. I don't know if they're creations of the mind or places that we've found. I think of... Think of the Egyptian Book of the Dead or the Tibetan yeah, right. Book of the Dead. You know, did they find something or did they imagine it? And I say that they found a place or a process or, a, you know, just like you might dress yourself up for a war or battle, let's say, they found ways to dress up our psyche for the this journey. Um, yeah, that's a- so, and, and ways to be able to go through. So I, I think a lot about that. And that also I find nourishing. Yeah. <laughs> but look at this. Look at the book that arrived in the mail today, Insect Mythology. By Jean Kinsky and... Yep. See, it's by scientists. I love it when scientists try to write about mythology. So you must have read Braiding Sweetgrass. No, oh, I will have to read that. Will. Braiding Sweetgrass is. It, it's it's written. Um, the last name is Kimmerer. I can't think of her first first name. It might be Robin, but I'm, I'm not sure. Um, Sounds beautiful. And it's written. She is a Native American, mm. and she is also a scientist. Oh, beautiful. so she has to reconcile her spiritual side with her scientist side, which looks at the world in very, very different ways. And it is fascinating. She's walking, she's walking the many worlds. Mm-hmm. Oh, isn't it braiding sweetgrass? That's beautiful. Yeah. But it's, her last name is Kimmerer. It's K-I-M-M-E-R. Kimmerer. Oh, I will definitely look that. That yeah, sounds beautiful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the books that are a combination of, you know, mythology or anthropology and... Uh, science because these guys can be crazy mm-hmm. you know don't think that they're just scientists I mean science, oh, no, no, no. You, they're some of the wackiest people you'll ever meet I, I watched right? yes I watched a video about the um, the building of the ark uh, yeah Gilgamesh's ark and it was a cor- it was this giant coracle and I can't remember the guy's name but he was a loon absolute yeah, crazy yeah, yeah, yeah. dude this big Father Christmas well little Father Christmas guy <laughs> with his little round glasses on getting so excited about this <laughs> You know, and he was so funny and yet so knowledgeable about what they were doing and and how they were building it. And, you know, he was talking about the different kinds of bitumen. And they were building it in India, but the bitumen that they used wasn't Indian tar. It was this Iraqi tar, 
which is a lot better, but they wouldn't import anything from Iraq, so they had to use this Indian tile, which didn't work as well. It was for not any... Anyway, he was, he was amazing. He was absolutely incredible. And mad as a hatter and, and as brilliant as a, a star at night, you know. Yeah, 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 brilliant as a star at night. That, yeah, my mm. brother is, um, an, an, was, you know, an entomologist and has a science mind, so I'm often tapping him for different things. Ah, so um, science runs in the family a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm like totally black sheep, totally like where'd this come from? I mean, I would ask my family and they'd say, well, your, um, your aunt, great aunt read tea leaves. <laughs> or your 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 great uncle had a wooden leg. Oh, so you're that side of the <laughs> and he family. Was very, well, that was the other side of the family. He had a wooden leg, and he was very entertaining. Okay. Um. So so that's my that's the entertainment background in my family. Reading tea leaves with a wooden leg. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what's kept? So we went through a big um a big depression um recession. What kept you going through that lean period? Or didn't you notice it? I <laughs> uh, didn't. Re- well, I didn't really notice it quite. That I mean, definitely. I mean, you at, when you work in the arts, mm-hmm. you have to always be aware that you need to. Um, you you use the material that people really see a use for. Let's talk about use. Mm-hmm. Uh, with your wildest dreams. And the whole idea you're doing it for anyway is to be able to do your most creative, wildest projects because you're funding yourself and yeah. nobody's going to say no. Right. So I've always had um, a good ability to kind of look and see, well, where might my material find a home? So I think in the recession, that period of time, I think we were we were seeing also the MCAS or, you know, the, the testing coming into the schools yeah. at that certain period mm-hmm. of time. So um, I know at different points I've seen the really big impact on performances that schools would, would like. Mm-hmm. Um, and But then you see something like the extended days, you know, will then have a need for someone to come in and they will be the same people year after year so that you might be able to switch over there. So I've just continue to come morph and uh, you know um, you know even now I'm I'm morphing I'm I'm looking at uh, you know I've I have this performance language of flowers mm-hmm. which and these are all performances that I want to do I just want to do them you know stories and myths about flowers with Celtic harp and song and um, you're really tied to the well not tied to it but you're really that that's a that lights your eyes up doesn't it Oh my God, it's so great. And then to think that you can find a place for it. So uh, I thought, well, garden clubs. Yeah. And to, to, you know, and I've done it, I've performed at other places, but you need to find people for whom this really is a joy to them. Right, resonates with Yes. And so we, Margo and I, tour this to garden clubs. We were just at a library last night within the groves. But I really am looking at the Thousand Doorways, which is the Kurdish project. I'm really looking at it possibly trying to work in theatrical venues um, because the message is so strong about, you know, meeting um, meeting people that you may not know and really, uh, you know, what is it like to to be with them and carry their stories that can't be told and learn at your 
yourself, learn yourself as fast as you can how to really be with another uh, culture, another group of people, and be present and witness uh, even to their suffering. Do yeah. And I think that's unfortunately a lot of what those of us, and that's a lot of us compassionate, sensitive people, we have to learn how to witness and how to be present and still sing, till still tell the stories, still um, make art um, in these very difficult times. Yeah. But I do think I'm going to be looking at um, some theatrical, which I have already. I mean, I brought it to the Edinburgh Fringe, and it's been at a few theaters. Uh, so that's like a morph. But I still am a storyteller. I look yeah. at myself oh, yeah. as a storyteller. But... Um, I think it's important to break that ceiling, um, right. you know. Yeah, yeah, I, I would agree with that. I would agree with that. So, how many gigs do you think you do on average in a year? Um, and I know it's like ebb and flow, ebb and flow, ebb and flow, but yeah, I don't really have a sense, you know. And um, you just keep working. <laughs> I'm sorry, Simon. <laughs> That's I don't. Right. I don't. I don't look at them as gigs, even though. Um, <laughs> Um, even though my, my friend is a drummer and he calls me a gig pig. So he's a, he's a good friend who's a drummer and he call, he says, gig pig, you know, cause he'll see how, what I'm doing for work. He'll go gig pig one. This is gig pig two. How's it going over? So I don't know, Simon, how many performances I do. I, I kind of know that in order to survive, I need a certain amount of money per month. Right. And then if I look ahead and I'm not making that much money per month, mm-hmm. I try to kind of increase the... The outreach. So do you do much cold calling, as it were? I just can't do that. You can't? I can't do it. So how do you make that extra? Um, well, I'd see, um, you know, I might do a snail mailing. I might say, oh, so-and-so booked me a while ago. I wonder if, I mean, do an email. I sometimes will do a personal email. Um, you know. uh, So it's reaching out to places that you've been before. It can be, it can be, yeah, yeah, or just do a a snail mail, Um, and sometimes I just put my thinking cap on, you know, um, because it does very much fluctuate. Yeah, I get that. Um, And really, a lot of the the most interesting projects you want to do are not necessarily going to be bringing in the high high money, but that's why you're doing it, so. So I just, you know, kind of look at the different possible venues and uh, um, that's it you know you just you just gotta keep thinking what you you have to also we're creating it because we want to but we also have to think who would this really please who would really enjoy this and at the same time you want to you want to say what's my trajectory as an artist and what do I want to what do I want to what needs to come out of this chaos and into the light. And, and also we're dealing right now with a lot of crises, a lot of crises in the natural world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm dealing right now with the crises that are facing the Kurdish people, as mm-hmm. I have been, when I thought it couldn't get any worse for them. It's continued to get worse. So even it has galvanized me around my performance, A Thousand Doorways. I'm doing things that I've meant to do for a long time. It's just like... I'm sending out proposals to theaters because it is a way for people to get to know them and to and once you know someone and their story it's a lot easier it's not as easy excuse me to dismiss them so right and easier to empathize with them 
Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, it all rises and falls. You know, I ha- I do have a business head on my shoulders, but as my friend Pam Christan, which you may know her, said, she said to me, look, your business and the promotional will take as much time as you give it. It will never be enough. Yeah, I would you say that. You have yeah. to decide. You have to decide when you're stopping. So I think that's more of a difficulty because it's easier to do the business in a way than to, you know, especially if you're in a rhythm, you've got mm-hmm. to establish a creative rhythm. So I have a studio nearby where I will go when I'm rehearsing to be out of the house, to be out of the... Really? Oh my God, it's beautiful, yeah. Friends have taken the third floor of their triple-decker apartment. There is nothing in it. Mm-hmm. Wooden floor. Nice. Windows. And I just go there for two and a half hours, you know, four hours, and just rehearse. Not when I'm rehearsing with Margot. That's easy. When I'm rehearsing with somebody else, I can yeah. be anywhere. Mm-hmm. But here, it's just like if you're working, you just feel a sucking feeling from the yeah. kitchen. It's like, wow, how did I end up in the kitchen? Yes. <laughs> I'm in the backyard, whoa. <laughs> That's a true statement. But walking, I mean, walking is wonderful too. I know Lauren Nimi did um, a workshop on, you know, just go walking. I mean, it's absolutely true. But when I'm walking, when I'm driving in the car, I mean, I have like 15 notepads in my, I mean, I I just, you know, I'm like going somewhere. It's like, what's this? Oh, this is the book. Oh, this is the, so it's constantly churning. Yeah. So what would you share with somebody? What What do you... What would you, um, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you first started? What little snippet of wisdom would you impart to somebody that was starting right now? Yeah. Well, I would, I would really, um, just really say to someone starting that, um, well, first of all, there's a there's a lot more knowledge about stories and 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 telling them than there than there really was when I was starting. You're talking about scientific. No, I just think in the, in the body of the 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 storytelling movement. Okay, all right. I would say to really you know study you know or ask to mentor with people or or study just just watch them. Um, you know, find what you think is, is uh, Tommy, my husband, he talks about when he was growing up and he was going to be skating, his father said to him, just took him to a rink, an ice skating rink, dropped him off and said, find the best person there and just follow him. Oh, wow. That's a good piece of advice. So I, I think there's a lot to that. And I would also say, just make sure you you read uh, like like mythology, like these thinkers on on old traditional tales, you know, really immerse yourself because you know we've lost a lot of connection for these traditional stories from the culture yes and since it's not possible to be sitting at the feet of elders and be spending the 12 years or more it might take to immerse yourself in the culture we can still begin to get an understanding of of the depth of stories and how they worked, you know, they, how they worked as a ritual and, a, and and just familiarize ourselves, you know, even if you, some of these books, I open it up, I'm like, I can't read this and I read it anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then the second time through, I'm like, mm, making a bit more sense. Yeah. 
but it's important to try to climb those those mountains and really to try to see how people are thinking about archetypes and dreams and symbols and um personal tales are great but they're not going to go to the same place that traditional tales or myths are going they're not going to the same place and that's why a lot of people mm-hmm. are saying i want to i want to have a workshop on marrying personal stories and traditional tales it's because they're trying to get that underbelly yeah for the for the real life yeah so when i was in jonesboro uh, last weekend i was i was talking to somebody that was an audience member and they you know they were talking about Historically, there's been a lot, you know, in the recent history of, of Jonesboro, the National Storytelling Festival, there's been a lot of personal stories being told. And this year in particular, there seemed to be a lot of folk tales being told. Ironically, Donna Washington was there and was telling personal stories, not folk tales. <laughs> it's funny, yeah. But, yeah, I know. Um, but she, she said, this is something that you're talking about, the underbelly, is, is that she noticed that the personal stories have a certain vibe to them, but the folk stories... There's a very different vibe, and there's there's this depth that people kind of they, you know, you're talking about these other worlds, mm-hmm. right? When you're listening to a personal story, you don't go to another world. You you're in the world of that particular and that mm-hmm. particular person up on the stage. Yeah. But when you get into the folk and fairy tales, you are taken to a different world. Yeah. One of many different worlds. Yeah. Depending on the story. And she said it was there was a there was a palpably. There was a very different visceral experience that she was having with mm. these different types of storytelling. And she said it was really cool when she was listening to the folk and fairy tales mm. that there's this place of comfort oh. that they were talking about. That, that she was talking about yeah. as an audience member? As an audience member, yeah. yeah. Interesting. It's very interesting because when I brought these stories to the garden clubs, mm-hmm. these places where they keep showing up, they could say, I had no idea, no idea what I was coming for, no idea. But they kept saying, I felt so peaceful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and yesterday when I took it to the library, they were just like, it just was, you know, they you're taking them to a different world. And very important thing that the storyteller makes people feel safe there mm-hmm. um, so even with the story of Deirdre okay we're going to some very difficult places the idea is that on the journey they need to know that I as a teller am going to be taking care of them the Celtic storytellers as you know they needed to be able to tell a story that would make or may, they had to be able to do three things make people laugh mm-hmm bring them to tears okay mm-hmm. because that's an important door to open yeah right is. yeah yeah very important door and also they had to be able to make them fall asleep <laughs> and i wrestled with that for years like i wrestled with the ending of gowan i mean like what do they mean i'm like oh they mean open the door to dreams they just didn't put it that way and then somebody told me an anecdote of they said um they said that they were going into classrooms and telling stories to kids. I think it was like second grade. And every time they went into the second grade classroom, this one little boy, she'd start telling the stories and poof, he fell asleep. She's like, what is the matter with me? You know, it's like my material. I'm just not entertaining. I'm not expressive enough. Every single time she went in, the kid poof, yeah. just fell asleep. And the teacher caught her in the hallways and said, you know, I just have to tell you something. The little boy who falls asleep in your classroom, every time you tell a story, he said his home life is so bad. It's so chaotic. There's violence. He's afraid to sleep at night. Oh, my God. But when you start telling a story, he feels safe. 
and he falls asleep. And I thought, that's what they mean. Yeah. That's what they mean. So I'm never upset when my audience falls asleep. <laughs> because really, it's they've gone beyond the language, yeah. the, 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 the threshold of dream. And, and it's just, and they're in whatever world they need to be in for that moment. Right. And that's, I think, what they mean when they say that, that you, the, the storyteller has, no matter what land you go to, there is a safety in their presence. Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And that's that comfort feeling. Yeah, I think so. Because I was thinking, well, these stories are, you know, one of them, I don't know why they think it's peaceful you know but they were saying that but they just felt like because of the way they were able to sit and they were able to go into this invisible these invisible worlds was a, a doorway that they hadn't really been able to open a lot and it was feeling like that to them wow that must be so for the Kurds who can't tell their stories you were giving them a safe place to open up part of themselves that hadn't been opened in a long time, I would imagine. I, people would say to me, I haven't been asked to tell a story in 20 years. Oh my gosh. That was the what I heard the most. I haven't been asked to tell a story in 20 years. So. Were you on M- NPR? I was on NPR. I was on several times. Of course, it was the same episode. <laughs> <laughs> so th- what was that experience like? Um, well, with NPR, they have different programs. Uh-huh. National so, Public Radio for those Yeah, National Public Radio. Um, so it was an episode called Living on Earth, uh-huh. and it was recorded here, so it wasn't really that unusual. We have the WGBH studios, and it was material that I already had. It was seasonal material, so it was nice. Um, it wasn't really high pressure or anything like that. I think... With most of these things, if your material ends up in the right desk at the right time and they're looking for it, it's a pretty natural and logical story and spoken word and the radio are very, very compatible. They are very compatible. (laughs) They work well together. Yeah. Yeah. Not much to say on it. Yeah. And I also... I highly recommend it. (laughs) (laughs) But I also saw that you, that maybe there's another Diane Edgecombe out there, but um, the in- internet movie database mentioned your name on Beowulf. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. That so was that, me. That was you? That was me. I got to pay, play Grendel. Grendel. I got to play, well, you know, fitting with my early, yeah. you know, Akala Goblin. And now I play. Well, it was, yes, it was a film done by Tom Kingdon, who's a. Uh, uh, director and teach professor of film at Emerson, and he wanted to do uh, Beowulf, uh-huh. but he wanted to do it using ex- developing it through experimental theater techniques, which are very physical. And um, he had a won- huh. wonderful videographer, so I got to play Grendel. I, I was very I would play to her like a bag lady, a crazy bag lady, and um, it was super. It was super fun. So I have been in in film. That was that was me. <laughs> that was you, two thousand and six, yeah, ladies and gentlemen. Yep, Bear yep, Wolf. Yep. <laughs> I don't have to find that now. Someone <laughs> watch it and put a link up on the website for people to go and see that. That'd be fun. So um, I'm going to ask you one more question. Okay, here we come. What is your favorite breakfast? 
Oh. Where would you like to eat it and oh. with whom? Oh, I, I like what we're doing right now. <laughs> uh, this would be brunch. <laughs> this would be brunch. That's right. It's a little late. Oh, okay. Well, what can I say? Um, I'm an omnivore. Uh, I would. I do love eggs Benedict. Mm-hmm. I okay. really do like that, and I would love to be by the lake. And I would love any particular to be... lake, the one down the road from here. No, it? that's a pond. That's okay. a, too small to be a lake. Um, you know, we used to spend our summers up in the Maine and by the okay. lake. And I'd like just to have my breakfast, knowing that I would just be able to spend the day just writing or reading or journaling or drawing watercolors and just be eating my eggs benedict <laughs> and just knowing that the rest of the day and this moment in the day there's like nothing else to do except just dabble and and write and you know Fine. when my husband and I go on vacation it's like we're loading up the car it's like he's got to bring his it's like vacation he's bringing his keyboard we're bringing our computers we're going to be writing we're going to be singing we're going to be so my favorite vacation and my favorite breakfast would be knowing I'm going to be have a day in creative work that's cool I like yeah. that well, Diane thank you so much for doing oh, this oh thank you really Simon it. it's it great to see you it's great to, to be you with too. you it's nice to be with you also thanks yeah you're welcome the yeah. end <laughs> and they all lived happily, happily ever, ever after, after. Thanks to Diane, who was a lovely host and a fabulous person to sit and chat with. Diane's work, including her book A Fire in My Heart and her four CDs, can be found on her website, livingmyth.com. There you'll also find videos of her story and craft and a link, which will go on the show notes, to the interview with Eric Wolf back in 2011 from his show, The Art of Storytelling. Thanks for taking the time out of your day to be here right now with me. I hope you, my listeners, enjoyed the conversation as much as I did and learned much about the art and the ways to look at the art and craft of storytelling. Creating this show is very much a labour of love. To help keep this podcast going and to help create more, please consider making a donation. You can do this through my Patreon page, www.patreon.com forward slash Simon Brooks. A couple of dollars a month, a single donation if you like a particular episode, will all help me reach further and create more of these conversations. It's not just the cost of the hosting of the podcast, but the travel to meet these folks, the time to record, edit and produce the show. But you know that. I would love it, absolutely love it, if you were able to leave a review on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Google Play or wherever else you found this episode. It helps not just me, but it helps others find this podcast and know what they're getting into. Thanks again for being here with me and my guests each month. Until next time, prosper and be happy. Cheers. Cheers.